Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. I'm very glad to be introducing Dr. Candace Vogler. I think that at a conference like this, it's important for people to recognize that although Thomas probably most of the things in, say, the Summa Theologiae, I think, are true. He doesn't address every issue or develop all of his thoughts, and it's not always clear how to apply Thomas's work to contemporary thought. So there's a real need for people to do this, not just to look at Thomas's texts or even just Thomists, but to engage more widely with different intellectual currents. And with Dr. Vogler, we have a very fine instance of this. She's at the University of Chicago, not a Catholic institution. She's published and worked on many different issues, moral philosophy, ethics, sexuality. I think she's also been important, frankly, just for her help with the general tone of Catholic intellectual culture. Uh, Even at the University of Chicago, you may know Father Stephen Brock. He has a book, Introduction to Thomas Aquinas, which I use sometimes with undergraduates, and he's very good. I think that she is at least one of the principal agents for his teaching there. So having a a Thomist priest at the University of Chicago. And all sorts of grants, or conferences, Uh, Templeton work. She's just done a lot of work both on her own engaging with different traditions, but also bringing different people together and making Thomas Aquinas a voice in uh, the contemporary intellectual scene. So I'm, I'm just very glad to introduce her. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, that's good. Thank you for that very kind introduction, and thank you for your talk, which was wonderful. Okay. Um, I'm supposed to talk about vice and sin. (laughs) Um, I wrote a book called Reasonably Vicious when I was much younger, and... um, it's an odd thing to find yourself professionally associated with vice. <laughs> so um, there was a while when I got uh, introduced as the vicious woman. It's like, well, not really that. Well, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Is there some, is something wrong? Oh, closer to my mouth. Like that? Okay, let's see if I can read myself if I do that. Okay, I'm going to start by talking just for a second about what I, how I understand habits or habitus in Aquinas, because that's going to be important for us. Um, I'm understanding habits as sort of coordinated inferential and motivational patterns that can leaf out into many different kinds of acts, basically. And habits are defined by their characteristic sort of family of acts. And it's not just one kind of act. These are not like scripts or something. They're not that kind of disposition. But there's a whole range of kinds of things that emerge from the basis of habits. Okay. Now, some of these tendencies are perfective of our nature. <laughs> these are virtues. I'll say a little more later on about how they perfect us. Um, others produce acts that impede our efforts to lead good and happy human lives. These are the vices. So we can acquire either sort of tendency. We acquire them voluntarily. Um, and once we've got them in us, they're kind of hard to remove by will. You can't just will them away. Um, now... Any serious understanding of our moral failings has to be built from the knowledge that human nature is fundamentally directed to human good, and that human acts, no matter how apparently depraved, are only intelligible insofar as they are directed towards something specifically good. If we cannot see this, we cannot understand the act in question. And this is the case, even though I suspect that no one in this room has ever encountered an entirely well-ordered adult human being. The intellectual animals, as we know them, never seem to be as they should be, even though we can't understand what any of them is up to without seeing him as directed towards something specifically good. That is a good sort of thing for a human being to go after. Aquinas is just fearless on this. Absolutely fearless. We're taught many things about members of our kind and our struggles to live well-ordered lives. We're taught that everything morally questionable about us starts in sin, and that having started in sin, it will end very badly unless grace intervenes. And we're taught that an original sin started that ball rolling before any of us managed a career of personal sin or the sort of self-inflicted taint that comes of vice. In this connection, G.K. Chesterton famously remarked, modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes. Whether or not a man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt that at any rate he wanted washing. But certain religious leaders in London 
not mere materialists, have begun in our day not to deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved, close quote. And I think we've heard this morning that the tendency he complained of is, has not gone away. The indisputable dirt is both actual sin and the understanding that actual sinners operate from a darkened intellect, disturbed passions, and disordered wills. That is, our powers are not automatically, harmoniously aligned in the way that they're supposed to be. Right. Um, virtue, the good sort of habit, I think is best understood as um, a cultivated tendency that helps to coordinate our powers and get them, bring them closer into line with what they ought to be. Okay, Chesterton suggests that actual sin is evidence of original sin. But one could notice sin, suspect that every adult human being has sinned at some point, and even think that humans are the only capable, animals capable of sinning, without supposing that humans are born to it. It is an uncomfortable topic, original sin. Like Augustine, uh, a champion of infant baptism, Gregory of Nyssa, a candidate ancient master of religion, I think, who offered powerful allegorical interpretations of the biblical creation narrative, was clear that some human beings may never be guilty of voluntary acts of sin and must nevertheless be counted among those who need salvific grace. Infant mortality has never been unknown among us. Now, modern scholars mark two different strands of creation narrative in Genesis, one of which suggests creation by direct divine fiat, by word, the other of which uses idioms associated with facture and making, in this sense, by deed. The strand which stresses creation by God's word seems to consist in eight commands followed by a blessing. The story of making divides God's creative activity into six days followed by a day of rest. Whether the two strands can be brought together or how they might belong to a single creation story was a matter of serious scholarly debate in the first quarter of the 20th century, a debate which, I gather, found no clear resolution on linguistic, philological, literary, critical, or historical grounds. Nevertheless, as I understand it, there is and always has been consensus that the order and character of things in creation is of a piece with the order and character of how things are now. I sort of think that that's always going to be true of a creation story or an origin myth, that it's pointing to some order that's still in place. The literatures on original sin share the view that in the beginning, the human was as a human ought to be. Our minds were subject to God. Our appetites were subject to reason. 
Our bodies did not make trouble for our minds in our minds. The first of these is the most important sort of order and explains the other two. Now there are strong philosophical grounds for holding that the intellect as such is immortal and that immortality belongs to the nature of an intellectual creature. The human, the intellectual animal, was created perfectly ordered. That's the view. Now, I've long been of the view that although it is most common to describe this happy condition in terms of downward subjection, reason is subjected to God, the lower powers are subjected to reason, the body is subjected to the mind, the tendency upward is the more interesting. Reason longs for God. Appetite and sense long to be reasonable. The body seeks health and harmony. These inclinations, I think, are intact. I sometimes say to my students, if you find yourself with an overly strong emotional response to what's going on, and you can actually do something about that by giving yourself a talking to, you have demonstrated for yourself that your emotions want to be reasonable. I mean, if they, were, uh, if they had nothing to do with it, that should never, ever work, unless it just kept you from doing something worse, okay? Um, that we somehow know better when we act against these tendencies, even though we may never meet an adult who, um, who is as a human being should be, is evidence of the depth of our natural attachment to how things should be with us. However far from it we may be, however inchoate or inarticulate the inclination may be, at core, we want to be right with God, right with our fellow creatures, and right with ourselves. To deny that we were given a nature directed to its own perfection would be to impugn God. But the rational will, the will as governed by discursive reason, the seat of the kind of intellectual activity that an animal can have, took a fatal turn away from God. I mean, I think you could argue that the whole of Genesis is about an increasingly spectacular series of instances of humans turning away from God. Now, thought about original sin took shape slowly and was never embraced in the Orthodox Church. Protestant and Catholic thinkers are inclined to see all sin as resistance to God and original sin as a kind of explanation of the human tendency to resist God, a tendency that no human can overcome without divine assistance. Vexing questions about original sin have been under discussion at least since the 4th century. As I understand it, modern scholarship has settled on the view that pre-Augustinian sources held that Adam's legacy to our kind is mortality and moral frailty, not sin or guilt. Later thinkers took it that humans must inherit sin, a unique sort of sin, admittedly, partly because Baptism is meant to affect a forgiveness of sin, and the only sort of sin infant baptism could forgive is original sin, 
and partly because the universality of the need for redemption through Christ is tied up with the universality of sin, which in turn points to a culpable defect in human nature. There is a parallelism between Adam and the new Adam, Jesus Christ, suggested by Paul in Romans. All fell in Adam, all might be redeemed in Christ. Although it is and has been standard to claim that contemporary teaching on original sin comes to us from Augustine, it is not obvious that Augustine gave us a single detailed doctrinal treatment of original sin. Nor is it clear that later medieval thinkers took it that Augustine had settled all questions on the topic. To deny that the human good um, at its that the human was good at its origin suggests that there was some strangeness in human nature from the first that God failed to equip the human properly. But how can we square God's goodness with a story about a defective creation? Augustine argued that a child's early death or great hardship from birth will impugn God unless the human was already a sinner in utero. Babies are born guilty. It's beautiful parts in the confession about how they're just not strong enough to act on it very well. They inherit Adam's sin, cannot redeem themselves by human means, and hence are born needing the salvific grace offered in Christ. Infant baptism helps to offer a partial remedy but because it neither takes away the stain of disordered concupiscence nor renders children immortal, we can plainly see that infant baptism alone cannot address original sin. By making original sin the fault of our first parents' voluntary turn away from God, a product of human free will, Augustine refutes the Manichaean tendency to suppose that evil is a force that operates all on its own, set up in opposition to the good. By insisting that humans cannot redeem themselves from this man-made disaster, he refutes the Pelagian thought that we are fully capable of saving ourselves from the wretched condition in which we find ourselves. Augustine's work left many questions about original sin unanswered. Crucially, he did not give an entirely satisfactory account of how it was that sin and guilt could be transmitted from parent to child. One has a sense for the complexity of the scholastic disputation on this point by noticing that Aquinas begins his treatment of original sin and de malo by exploring the question whether any sin is contracted by way of origin before asking what original sin is. The honest precedes the quidest, suggesting that how there could be a sin that was transmitted from a primal source, the, a first father to indefinitely many descendants, remained a serious question. Aquinas fields 19 objections to the claim that there could be original sin in this sense. Now, Aquinas' work on original sin, I think, draws most heavily from Anselm's account. 
Anselm stressed that since only the will of an intellectual creature can be sinful, unless and until an individual human being has a rational will, it cannot have sin. That sin can no more be transmitted through bodily procreation than can the rational will itself. God is the source of each human being's rational will. In what sense, then, can an infant be a sinner unless God infuses the prenatal human being with a damaged soul? God would not be the source of a newly infused soul marred with darkened intellect, disturbed passions, and a disordered will, Anselm argued. Such a thing would be unjust. Instead, Anselm argues, original sin is nothing but the privation of original justice, a definition that Aquinas accepts. Now, I don't know how directly Augustine, Anselm, or Aquinas drew from Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa, drawing from Platonic, Neoplatonic, Aristotelian, and early Christian sources, as well as scripture, argued that the human as an intellectual creature made in God's image is free, properly immortal, properly impassive, and properly engaged in contemplation of God. All these were ours in the prelapsarian state. That we are now mortal all by itself is enough to show that we've been banished from paradise. For Gregory of Nyssa, the promise of salvation in a resurrected life is the promise of a restoration to our proper condition. Drawing on biblical uses of agricultural imagery, he writes, quote, As the body of the ear is formed from the seed, thanks to God's power that with his art makes the, far, the ear out of the grain itself, and the ear is neither completely identical with the seed, nor completely different. So the mystery of resurrection, too, has been indicated in advance through the wondrous modifications taking place in the seeds, in that God's power not only will return you the body, which will be dissolved, but will add another splendid and beautiful characteristic, thanks to which your nature will be constituted in a greater magnificence. He says, it is sown in corruption, it rises in incorruptibility. It is sown in weakness, it rises in power. It is sown in dishonor, it rises in glory. It is sown as psychic body, it rises as spiritual body, Human nature, after abandoning in death all its characteristics, which had, it had acquired through the tendency um, of subjection to passion, I mean ignominy, corruption, weakness, differentiation, according to the age, does not lose itself, but it changes into incorruptibility, as into an ear, and into glory, honor, power, and perfection in all respects, close quote. The thought that we've been living exiled from our true home 
and that we seek restoration, sort of true fruition through Christ, is an especially vivid account of our lot as deprived. This is a very serious evil on any properly primitive understanding of evil. Pre-Augustinian Christians struggled to understand the universal need for salvific grace as of a piece with revelation that the human brought its misery upon itself. Augustine coined the term original sin and urged that a tendency to turn away from God and toward the things of the world was inherited and a sure indication that all humans need to seek salvation through Christ. Later thinkers joined in the task of explaining how there could be a sin at our origin that was not just a personal sin, but a sin that afflicted human nature. How and why and in what way Jesus Christ, who was necessarily mortal, was not operating at the loss common to fallen humanity, why the incarnation was necessary for our redemption, and so on. Still, images of the sin attaching to human nature as an absence of what the human needs for its own perfection, a privation, showed up very early in the uneven starts and stops of Christian thought on these topics. A perfectly ordered intellectual animal was at once and by grace may again be immortal, well-ordered, and oriented to God. It is possible to gather the seeds of a picture of human perfection philosophically. Theology and revelation are needed to try to sort through whether and how we might get from where we are to where we long to be. Now, Aquinas takes up Anselm's definition of original sin as the privation of original justice. Accordingly, the account hangs on a view about the character of original justice. Daniel Hook, whom we heard about yesterday, argues, I think convincingly, that Aquinas' account of original justice underwent significant change from, its very er from his very early engagement in the scriptum on Peter Lombard's sentences to the position sketched in each of the two famous summas and explored in Damalo. Aquinas carries forward much of the traditional understanding of original justice throughout. The human was created in justice, enjoying all the perfections that humans ought to have. This was, in effect, our ideal natural state, and Aquinas agrees with much of the thrust of his predecessor's understanding of original justice as humanity's prelapsarian condition. The shift in Aquinas's view centers on the relation between nature and grace in original justice. Aquinas entered a world where questions about the roles of nature and grace in original justice took shape in disputation over whether any offspring in paradise could have inherited original justice had Adam and Eve not sinned. If original justice was simply human nature as it ought to be, 
And if God's justice turned on giving the human the order it needed to live well, then why couldn't first parents who obeyed God transmit human nature as it should be to their offspring? Many thought that there had to be a sort of parallel between original justice and original sin. Just as we inherit original sin from our first parents, so too could our first parents have transmitted original justice had they stayed obedient to God. On such views, original justice is natural justice. Had they not sinned, original justice would have passed from Adam and Eve to prelapsarian offspring in paradise on such views. Now, Anselm thought this was ridiculous. Sorry, not, he doesn't say ridiculous. That's my, that's my paraphrase. <laughs> but Aquinas started out supposing that a sinless Adam might have transmitted original justice to his descendants. For this to be possible, original justice would have had to belong to nature in such a way that grace was not a constitutive feature of original justice. No one thought that grace could be transmitted through procreation. Original justice involved a kind of natural justice, Aquinas argued. Still, prelapsarian human nature required preternatural support to be as it should be. Human nature could not sustain its prelapsarian perfection without divine assistance. For all that, fully supernatural support, sanctifying grace, although present in conditions of original justice, was not itself a part of original justice in Aquinas' earliest writings about our topic. Peter Letter sums up Aquinas' early position this way. In his earliest account of original justice, Aquinas distinguishes a formal element, the rectitude of the will, and a material element, the order of rectitude in the lower powers. Similarly, in original sin, there is a formal element, namely the privation of the formal element of original justice, that is, of rectitude of the will, and a material element, the privation of the material element of original justice, that is, of the order in the lower powers. This shows well enough that St. Thomas does not consider sanctifying grace as included in original justice. He finds in original justice a formal element that is distinct from the gratuitous justice. That same, uh, the same appears in the way in which he explains how baptism remits original sin. Baptism does not, by infusing grace, take away the material elements of original sin. It removes its formal element namely the insubordination of the will. How and why? By remedying, that, by, by remedying what makes the privation of that justice a sin of nature which infects the person. Quote, baptism gives grace, and in virtue of that grace, the infection which the person contracted from nature is removed, hence the guilt and the obligation to undergo a punishment also vanish, close quote. 
In later work, Aquinas came to accept the arguments that original justice, like the rational will that found its happiest home there, could not be transmitted from parent to child through natural procreative activity. Sanctifying grace and original justice had to come bound together, the kind of position that would seem, I think, a clear development of Anselm's insight. If original justice is bound up with sanctifying grace, it's no surprise that one rejects the idea that original justice might be sexually transmitted. Sanctifying grace is infused, not inherited. If a properly functioning human nature requires sanctifying grace, it is no wonder that we can't remedy our lot under our own steam. In this respect, Gregory of Nyssa's image of the, a fully realized human being is one I find especially inspiring. We could be glorious. We could love God above all else with ease. We could be always turned to immutable good. We could be right with ourselves, with each other, and with the whole of creation. And clearly, there is no way for us to get from where we are at, to our best and fullest actualization without God's help. Okay. Now, some recent literature on original sin returns directly to the Christological source core of the doctrine. Kevin McMahon describes some advantages of this return this way. Quote, there is, however, still another benefit that has come with the new emphasis on Christ, beyond that of reminding us how much more grace of God has abounded in the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, the man sin has condemned. In you know, Romans, right? It is the benefit of shifting attention away from the issue of the first man's sin or the first couple's or whether there was a first couple rather than a first human community, or whether um, human communities have arisen separately in different places at different times, or whether any sin has or could implicate the entire race, or has or could be transmitted, or whether there could possibly have been such a place as paradise, and in what sense human um, sin may have affected creation. All these questions have proven to be somewhat embarrassing in the face of contemporary science. If the central claim is that all grace is gratia Christi and that in one way or another, everyone is in need of it, then the issue of whether and how the universal need is tied to the sin of Adam becomes of secondary importance. It's a point. Suppose, then, that we never were in paradise. The seeds of traditional accounts of fully actualized human nature are, I think, philosophical. The possibility of salvation through Christ is revealed knowledge. The view that we can have some confidence 
that humans will commit actual personal sins as they grow up is just common sense. That not all sins are the same is a matter of Catholic dogma. An inborn tendency to resist God, as Aquinas teaches, sin in a secondary sense of the term, is there. Um, and then we can say things like venial sin is less bad than mortal sin, and so on and so on. Now, I confess, I mean, I'm just a philosopher. I have neither the knowledge nor the training needed to give a fully satisfactory and thoroughly Christological account of original sin. I want instead to press on that Anselm Aquinas definition of original sin as a privation of original justice, drawing from Gregory of Nyssa's images of the fully actualized human nature to understand how we find ourselves at a loss. We cannot attain such a state without sanctifying grace, and as Anselm suggested and Aquinas came to think, no one could ever have been in such a state without grace propping everything up to make it possible in the first place and sustainable over time. A perfectly ordered human enjoying the beatific vision in a resurrected life will be glorious. I am captivated by the image of the resurrected human life that we find in Gregory of Nyssa. The beauty of the Cappadocian picture lies in the fact that it is so obviously drawn from an understanding of human nature, so obviously desirable, and so obviously out of reach without divine assistance. Suppose that this is a representation of human participation in God's glory. Aquinas treats this topic clearly and economically in considering what we seek when we ask that God's kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. What we seek is our own ultimate perfection in a life in participation with God. If this is a reasonable starting point, I take it that we can assume that we are born morally frail and mortal, beings oriented to an ultimate good that we cannot attain ourselves, and that this ultimate good involves the perfect coincidence of fully developed human nature and human happiness. This becomes the sense in which we are born to conditions of privation, we are born needing grace if we are to attain the end that is ours by nature, even though the means to attain that end are not ours by nature. To claim this is just to claim that in giving us immortal intellectual souls, God did not simultaneously hand us everything needed for a perfect and incorruptible life. We are born mortal, weak, and by nature oriented to eternity. That is our lot. In this line of speculation, that becomes what it is to be deprived of original justice. Does the fact that I was born needing extra assistance from God and needing to seek that aid through Christ suggest that God has been unjust? 
Did God wrong me when I was still in my mother's womb? Should God have given me more than my longing, my intellect, his revelation, and access to dogma? Anselm thought not. Anselm argued that since the human is not owed original justice, withholding original justice from any individual human being is not itself unjust. In this sense, we are not so much born stained, a kind of disfiguring birthmark on the soul, as we're born without the kinds of gifts needed to share in God's glory. Instead, we enter the world bound to satisfy this debt by seeking salvific grace in Christ through penance for our actual sins and so on. If I understand him, this is the core of Anselm's account of original sin. Now, my hunch is that one could develop such an account in a way respectful of modern science and respectful of church teaching. I've tried to do little more than sketch the barest outlines of such an account, lacking both the training and the balance, really, required to walk the tightrope between the two. Um, as I say, I'm pretty inclined to just be flat-footed about original sin. I'm inclined to think it is neither more nor less than the absence of original justice. A fact that, the fact that our powers are not perfectly coordinated, lined up under God and reason in the way that human nature needs for its own perfect realization, makes it very easy for us to act contrary to reason and if we do so often enough, and most importantly, come to enjoy the results of our sin, we have started down a road where a vicious second nature can seriously compromise our efforts at living the happy and good lives we're meant to lead. And that's what happens when we begin to develop vice. It's not just that we wobble. It's that we come to enjoy the wobble. The pleasures associated with teetering begin to shine brightly enough that we think, why not? Now, it's nice to be tipsy sometime. Um, the bread is delicious. Um, so why not have more of it? I mean, surely... You have the modest powers of imagination required to think of something you'd rather do than what you ought to be doing, and so on. It's like the tendencies there are very, very easy to tap into, right? They're just tendencies. We have to actually go forward with the act and sin in order to really put ourselves on the road to something as foul as vice, um, but that's what I have for you today. Thank you. I was wondering what the ontological status of a habit is. For example, like uh, virtue and vice, is that something that is a modification of human nature? Is that how virtue makes us good and vice makes us bad? Uh, just what is the ontological status of a habit? As I say, I think the only way to make sense of what a habit is in a way that's consistent with a Thomist understanding of habitus 
is to treat it as a coordinated motivational and inferential pattern. So you've got will and intellect operating jointly. How does that work? Well, um, suppose Tom appears to be in great distress in front of me. And suppose I have some small tendency to kindness or basic humanity or decency in me. The fact of his distress is going to lead me to wonder how I might help. Right? And it's going to instantly begin to engage my thinking and my motivational system in such a way that I will be inclined to render aid to somebody, to a fellow human being who looks like he needs assistance, okay? Um, I do this with my, I, I teach a business ethics course that's basically attempting to help them cultivate better habits. And we do all kinds of things, like try to identify our own tendencies that we can't possibly side with to sort of jump to conclusions about other people, to jump to conclusion, to uh, exaggerate senses of our own goodness, to do all these kinds of things, um, and to sort of begin to uproot some of those patterns in favor of basically virtue, although you don't announce to econ majors at the University of Chicago that that's what you're trying to do with them. <laughs> Um, but it is what you're trying to do with them. Does that help? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. I really enjoyed your talk. Um, so one objection which I think will come up both in relation to your talk and to the talk prior, um, especially to people who aren't very versed in this, is related to the nature of owing or obligation. Mm. Um, because I think there's an extremely persistent tendency, which I feel the pull of, to say that if you can help someone at no cost to yourself, then you owe it to them to help them. Um, this comes up in, like, Singer's Ethics. This comes up in, you know, various other presentations of, of this sort. Um, so then what is the fundamental nature of obligation or owing that we should be using that wouldn't say that, you know, God owes us sanctifying grace because it is good for us and it costs him nothing to give it to us. Um. Oh, my goodness. Um, I take it that it, uh, I don't think ordinary understanding of obligation transfers to God and God's relation to human beings at all. Um, I think that grace is gratuitous, <laughs> sort of all the way through, and not merited or owed or anything like that. Um, you can, I think, none of the ordinary equipment you use to think about ob actual obligation where the simplest and best understood sort is contractual or promising obligation, right? Which is the kind of thing that Singer has no way of showing at all, right? How is it that um, the dead hand of the past by which I promised to have coffee with you two days ago or something like that means that you own a piece of my future now 
And I have to at least give you an excuse if I'm not going to show up when I said I would. I mean, it's very difficult. None of singer style thought about obligation follows any traditional European thought on the topic as near as I can tell. I don't just mean like medieval thought. I mean like Kant or Hume, you know. Um, for Hume, at least it's artificial and it's a convention, right? You can't, there's no conventions in singer world, right? Nobody's convening on anything. You're just being told that, you know, so many factory farm chickens plus six people are suffering over there and you need to do everything you can to sort of lower the... Um, the, the, to raise the hedonic quotient or something, right? So I don't think that Singer has the, the equipment necessary to say anything about obligation. I mean, Kant is mad, but at least he understands the difference between an obligation and, you know, an intention or an expectation and so on. And certainly Catholic intellectual thought knows a lot about all this, right? So... In terms of, like, destroying Singer, I would be happy to do that with you over dinner or something, because <laughs> he's easy, he's easy prey. <laughs> I mean, when, it, when Hume looks to be stricter about promising than anybody, <laughs> you're sort of like, wow, you are out on a limb. <laughs> Hi. I'm not sure whether I'm asking a question about something I missed or about something we just didn't get to. Um, but if it's the second, I hope you don't mind. Oh. Um, so the loss of original justice, I could see how that results in, or maybe I should say amounts to, although it's not quite the same thing, um, a tendency to resist God, as you put it. But I could see someone saying tendencies as such aren't punishable. You have to actually do it. Um, but if you hold to that, then the idea is that we will merit punishment only for actual sin and not original sin. So I feel like I'm missing a piece of the traditional picture here. Um, I think that the best... I, the person I found, as you could probably tell, the, the thinker I if you don't count the Greek fathers, the thinker I found most moving on this topic is actually Anselm. And I don't think that Anselm has an account of the culpability that's entirely satisfactory. It's more like it starts the ball rolling when you notice that the only thing that prevented you from falling into some depraved state, was that God was propping you up in all kinds of ways. So I take it that the tendency is very strong and the, that the tendency actually counts as a defect in the rational will. I think he's counting on that to handle the culpability stuff, but he's not as insistent on guilt as somebody like Augustine is. So you're not getting Anselm writing to you about the guilty babies that would injure us worse than they do if only their arms were strong enough to strike a deadly blow. 
I, I was just going to mention from something from St. Thomas in that context. But when we say that original sin is a habit, we don't mean in primarily an operative habit. Primarily it's in the essence of the soul. But the first kind of effect or things is in the turning of the will from God. And then the other disorders, because original justice was sanctifying grace plus an order of all the parts to God. And this order has been destroyed with what we've inherited through original sin. So there actually, there aren't individual acts to be punished, but there's still the aversion uh, to God that automatically follows. People's wills are turned away from God without sanctifying grace. And so when they act, they'll, they'll commit a mortal sin, but they haven't acted yet. It's like when people are baptized they have the habit of loving God, but they don't have any meritorious acts until they have the use of reason. So when you think then about that, there is something that it's the kind of thing where people are in a state where they're turned away from God. This is one reason why Thomas has confusing texts about limbo. Or sometimes he speaks about it as if there's a slight kind of punishment Sometimes it's a state of purely natural happiness. And the later disputes among Thomas, I mean, it's not universally agreed that limbo is just purely natural happiness because, I mean, it's denied that they suffer full pains of hell and punishment for sin, and it's denied that they go directly from heaven. So these are the extreme positions that you deny. But some people think it would be perfectly natural happiness. Others say, look, they still died in aversion to God. So there's some sort of slight something, right? They can't have purely natural happiness because they die turned away from God. But although they haven't permitted, they haven't committed any actual sins against God. And so I think in, for Thomas, that's important. That, that Franciscans sometimes speak about it as if it's just a loss of some things. But with Thomas, the first effect, after talking about original sin and the essence of the soul, is this turning of the yeah, will. Yeah, of course. So um, what do we say to the objection that um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fundamental question about moral responsibility, um, I guess. Uh, so with just original sin before committing actual sin, um, you're not deserving of, as I understand the doctrine, you're not deserving of hell in the full sense, but of something like limbo. Um, and then once you commit actual sin, you're deserving of hell in the, in the full sense. Um, uh, what do we say to the objection that, well, um, moral responsibility requires the ability to do otherwise, and the ability to do otherwise than commit actual sin would evidence like some people who say, are born with original sin but never actually sin, right? Um, but we see no such people, and so we can't be morally, morally responsible for actual sin. Um, it's a very like fundamental question about moral responsibility. You don't even have to bring in hell necessarily, like or, or theology, um, but it's just about the ability to do otherwise. The, I think that the relating to both 
your question and Professor Gorman's question. The thorniest piece of original sin, the thing that Augustine seemed to just swallow whole and not be too worried about, is this idea that it's actual guilt or something that's transmitted along. It's not just um, moral frailty and not being oriented to God in the right sort of way. Okay, mortality, moral frailty, not being oriented to God in the right sort of way, where moral frailty and not being oriented to God the right sort of way may just be the same thing, right? Um, so the question had to do for a lot of people with what it meant for guilt to actually, for you to be born guilty, which is about as far away from contemporary common sense as you can get. I think contemporary people think, what does it mean to suppose that the baby is guilty? <laughs> I mean, I know you could say various things about the parents or the older siblings or something, but the baby? Um, and something like that has to be the view, right? So, um, and the view's deepest roots are Christological, I think. The core, if you take it, that the need for salvation and redemption is universal, and you suppose that a human being can die before it ever has enough stuff in place to commit personal sin, then you need to suppose that the infant requires redemption, <laughs> right? And that is part of what really, it's part of early arguments for the why the incarnation was necessary, it's part of Though it's not just about infant baptism. Infant baptism is meant as a partial remedy, right? But it's about arguments for the incarnation and so on. So it's deeply embedded in an awful lot of the heavy-duty theologic, theological material. Um, so I've been inclined to try to find a version of it that works okay for me because much as I don't like the guilty babies either, <laughs> um, because I don't know how you preserve a whole lot of other things if you decide that we'll let go of this piece. I mean, I think that's, a, there's two sorts of ways of hearing that question. One of them is sort of philosophical. And then I think you talk about the order of God's justice and mercy. And that's the line you use in responding to it. If you mean, how do I talk to people who don't share a set of religious views about it, that's a different kind of question. And I think it's the only way I know to m motivate it for people who aren't in 
the same kind of religious conversation that I've tried to be in most of my life, like a, a Christian religious conversation, would be to try to pull on the intuitions about just how shabby people are and how strange it is that any of us ever knows better, given what we see around us, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing that we know better when we sin. Um, it's kind of incredible that people tend to know better, right? And that's a really powerful point given that nobody has ever spent a whole lot of time face-to-face with a person who never sinned, right? Like we don't have the exemplar is something that we have to be working with internally, not something that we could know through our experience with ordinary human beings. So the only way I know it is to sort of try to get people to think about how much they know without knowing, and then what it would mean for that for them to be right about what a hum, how a human ought to be able to live, and then to try to argue that an awful lot of the things they think about people actually depend on this kind of an idea about how human beings ought to be able to live, even though we've never seen them living that way. No, I mean, I don't, I teach at a secular institution, so the the Christianity is almost never part of the surface text, (laughs) but it's always part of the subtext. And 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 I think Aquinas is the one who helps me with that, because I believe that people are the way he describes them. I believe that they want to be well ordered. I even believe that something in them longs for God, right? Which is not what they would my students would necessarily say if you ask them. But if you sort of work on an assumption that that piece of what Aquinas is saying about who we are is just true, you're, it can be amazing how open people can be <laughs> to things you think they wouldn't be open to unless they accepted revelation. <laughs> Thank you very much. I have a question about how to map on what you were saying, or if you could say some words about um, the there, there's classical distinctions, at least that Thomists have traditionally made, about the ends, like the natural end, the supernatural end, um, and so a state of you know being born into um, a state of original, like a state of pure nature would have led you to a natural 
you know, you would have had your natural end, but not the supernatural end, unless God had given grace. Whereas it seems like Baz, uh, or, um, Gregory of Nyssa, when he's talking about the fulfillment of the human person, this, this seems to be clearly a supernatural end. How does the natural, uh, the, like this twofold order of ends, um, enter into the picture in your view, or how, how would you map that on to um, what you presented? I actually take it that it's that the supernatural end is the is the ultimate end, and that it's supposed to order the other ends below it. That that may not it's not always obvious how that's going to work, but it's not like we're completely punching holes in nothingness about all of that. We've got scripture, we've got tradition, we've got lots of things that tell us how, in practice, we can actually be orienting ourselves to God in a sort of day-to-day way. Now, that's not going to be enough to get us the supernatural end. That's going to be gratuitous. We have no clue. That's way over my pay grade. But in terms of trying to live a life where you're not impeding the work of grace um, in your own life or the lives of other people around you, that you can get somewhere just from that, I think. And that's the kind of thing you can actually have as a conscious, clear end, right, that is related to your supernatural end, even though it's a natural end, right? Um, so how does it all go together? Um, I think in a bit-by-bit, day-by-day sort of a way is how it all goes together. Um, you side with the idea that you, your ultimate perfection as a human being would be if you were granted the beatific vision in a resurrected life. You know you can't get there, but you can certainly do what's available to you to try not to impede the work of grace in your own life or the lives of other people. And that's not impossible, I don't think. Not with prayer, meditation, practice, things like that. Um, Virtue of penance, various other things. That's all about trying to align yourself as far as you can with the order that is your own best order. But, I mean, again, that may not answer your question. You might have wanted a philosophical account or something instead of a, here's a thing I do, um, (laughs) or a thing we can do. From history point of view, was original sin like a theory that justified the incarnation or it was a theory that tried to describe the nature of the world like which one came firstly like the theory that justified incarnation or the other ones and I use the term theory here because like I was raised as an Orthodox, so like for Eastern theology, original sin is not an actually essential thing. It's... Yes. No, I understand. Um, 
it had a rocky start. Interestingly, historically, it's um, roughly, as I understand it, it's roughly contemporaneous with the insistence on a triune God. Right? It's just that everybody loved the triune God, <laughs> and a whole lot of people were appropriately concerned about original sin. So what all factors conspire to sort of produce this piece of doctrine for Protestants and Catholics? Um, and mm, led the Eastern Orthodox people to just say, no, <laughs> that's a step too far. Um, it's not that they have no account of why everybody needs redemption. They do. It's just not an account that's based on the thought that we're all born in original sin, right? Um, um, yeah. So, it's a fairly serious, serious theological question, and I don't, I'm not enough of an, I mean, I read the history I noticed it coming and going. I noticed it going through all these different twists and turns along the way. I noticed my um, beloved Greek fathers not quite going there with everybody else and saying, no, get rid of the sin and guilt part. Just It's enough if it's mortality and moral frailty. That's plenty. Um, that's all we need. Um, so I'm aware it's a very, very peculiar bit of teaching. And um, I sort of started diving into it just because it's such a peculiar bit of teaching and wanted to at least understand the motivations for it. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.